Welcome to What May Seem. My name is Host, and my existence is technically unconfirmed. Hello, dear listeners. I hope that you've been having a nice time since we've last spoken. I have, for the most part, recovered from my adventure into the other forest, although some bruises and soreness remain, along with a few lacerations, a sprained ankle, and a broken wrist, and the nightmares. I really haven't recovered at all, but I march ever onwards. My injuries have kept me mostly confined to my home, although I am not disappointed with that, for my home is comfortable and friendly. It is located just up north from the university I graduated from a few years back, and it was surprisingly inexpensive, probably because of its location just on the edge of the forest by my home. My house is not large. In fact, it's quite small. There is a bathroom with a tile floor and a wood-burning stove in the kitchen, along with a small wooden table and four mismatched chairs. A sofa and two overstuffed armchairs sit by my fireplace, which, along with the stove, serves to heat the open room that comprises my first floor. There is also a desk that is, more often than not, covered with various accoutrements and many many bookshelves packed with textbooks, encyclopedias, and notebooks, which seem to find their way onto every other surface in my small home. A ladder-like staircase leads to the loft that I sleep in, when I am not up late into the night reading and working. The loft has a wall of windows which look out onto the forest by my home, and I quite enjoy gazing out them on clear days and rainy nights. I'm quite content in my house, even though it's what some would call messy. I prefer the term comfortably cluttered. I can still remember the day I moved in, as though it were yesterday. I was fresh out of university, and a few friends drove up to help me unload my boxes. They stacked books on the shelves and tucked sheets onto the mattress of my bed. They even helped me paint my door a glorious shade of bottle green. That was a few years ago, and although the paint has faded, I assure you, the memories have not. When I have a reprieve from work and a warm day, I like to throw the windows open and spend a couple hours cleaning my house. Earlier this week, I had one such day where I could close my notebooks and open the cabinet under my sink full of cleaning supplies. I'm quite happy that I decided to clean when I did, even though I could not be as thorough as I wished due to my injuries, because when I went to check my protection wards to make sure that they were charged and functioning, they were mere days from breaking. Such an occurrence could be catastrophic for the well-being of both myself and my home, so I set upon recharging them immediately. Normally they last an entire year, but my hypothesis is that my journey to the other forest, and whatever I brought back from it, put quite an immense strain on them. Regardless, I I recharged each one very carefully, making sure to burn the right herbs and chant the right Latin words to ensure their stability for another year. And then I dusted. As I was eating breakfast yesterday and jotting down some ideas for this episode of the podcast, I realized that I mention my job quite often and figured out that you, dear listeners, might wonder what my occupation is. And my answer to that is, I am a studier. Specifically, a studier of things that do not want to be studied. I have a degree and everything. 
The nature of my job is a tad bit nebulous, though. See, I don't receive a salary or a paycheck or much money in general. I write papers, academic ones, about my findings and publish them. I have earned critical acclaim for my work. Oh, and I also have a book. It's my pride and joy and the source of my income. Anyway, I I'm aware of the questions that my job may prompt. It isn't really a field that many choose to go into. So I decided to compile three stories of when the things that I was trying to study really didn't want to be studied. So I had to try extra hard to study them. Our first story takes place during my childhood. I was a curious young thing with a taste for adventure and a total lack of any sense of self-preservation. We all know where this is going. So I was in a forest one day, neither the forest by my home nor the other forest, minding my own business when I heard a quiet rustling not too far from where I was examining some mushrooms. Now, rustling in a forest isn't uncommon. In fact, it's the most likely forest sound. But this was a different type of rustling. It wasn't an animal darting through the forest and accidentally brushing something rustling, but rather a living being making a conscious decision to rustle rustling. When faced with something like this, one must think fast. See, I was young at the time, but not too young to know that purposeful rustling can be the only indication of an oncoming attack. I was, however, too young to take that into consideration on such short notice. So I wrestled back, taking the small hatchet that I always carried with me and drawing the handle across dry leaves that hung from a low tree branch. I made sure to do so slowly so that whatever being had rustled previously would know that I was rustling in response and not just loudly fumbling my way through the forest. To my delight, I was rewarded with an answering rustle, albeit further away than the first one. It was at that point that my inclination to study that which I did not understand completely overpowered what little rational thinking I had left in my mind leading me to make the decision to follow the rustling. The forest I was in, nicknamed the Sunlit Forest by locals for its thin leaf coverage that allows sunlight to beam across the forest floor, was known to be a beginner's forest. There were no documented dangerous animals, the trees were peacefully non-sentient, and the terrain was mostly flat, save for the occasional small hill. It was basic as hell, but... As I followed the rustling, occasionally running my hatchet handle over nearby plants and rocks to make sure that it knew I was still following, I began to notice peculiarities, if you will, in the world around me. First, the undergrowth darkened both in color and due to the fact that less and less light was piercing the trees. Then, the plants and shrubs that were usually covered in small flowers and edible berries became more dark and gnarled and seemed to shy away when I extended my hatchet handle as though moved by some unfeelable wind. Even deeper into the forest and a sort of darkness looked to be twisting and winding up the trunks of the trees like vines of ivy, only instead of sitting on top of the bark, it burrowed into it. I made sure to take note of these changes, but marched ever onwards, following the rustling and rustling back. It wasn't until I reached a small clearing in the trees that the rustling stopped its forward trek, and instead took to sort of 
circling around me. Remembering a quote I had read in A Beginner's Guide to Studying, I pulled a camera out of the small knapsack that I always took with me on walks into the forest. Primed and ready, I waited for the next rustle to come. But it didn't. In fact, the forest had fallen strangely still and quiet. The air was thick and humid against my skin, and the tree's leaves were unmoving. Nevertheless, I waited with my camera, knowing that if I gave up and left now, I wouldn't have really studied anything, and my jaunt through the forest would have been for nothing. Then I saw a dark flash, a smudge of movement out of the corner of my eye, just on the edge of the clearing. I jerked my camera, attempting to follow it, but by the time my flash went off, the forest had fallen still again. Suddenly, another dark flash on the opposite side of my vision sped past, and again I tried in vain to capture it, but again I was too slow. This tiring game of cat and mouse went on for what felt like hours, until I was so exhausted I collapsed into the corrupted undergrowth. I was just about to give up and go home, tucking the dozens of pictures that I had taken into my knapsack, when the rustling started up again. I struggled to my feet, camera at the ready, as it crescendoed into a rumble, as though something was barreling toward the tree, through the trees towards me. It turned out that something was barreling through the trees towards me, and at an alarming rate, a massive being unlike anything I had ever laid eyes upon was lumbering into the clearing, pushing trees and shrubbery out of its rampaging path. My first instinct was to run like hell. Luckily, I almost never obey my first instinct, because my first instinct is often to run like hell, and if you run like hell away from everything, then you live a life of running like hell, and that's no fun. So my second instinct was to crouch down between some low shrubs and wait for the being to enter the clearing. As it did so, hurtling through the last ring of trees with the gusto of something that was very, very hungry, something miraculous happened. The trees above me shifted just right to allow a beam of sunlight to rain down upon the beast that I was facing, giving me the perfect lighting to stand up out of my hiding spot and snap a picture. Dark fur, sharp claws, beady eyes, and all. The downside to this was that the flash of my camera, and the rather loud mechanical whirring of it ejecting the picture, attracted the attention of the beast, and I found its beady eyes focused on me. It was then that I decided to run like hell. The beast seemed to have the same idea, chasing after me as I plowed a path through the forest, trying my best to follow the route that I had taken to the clearing. As I ran, I looked down at my now fully developed photo and saw a magnificent capture of the horrors that were close on my heels. In the picture, the sunlight gleamed off the beast's teeth and claws and was seemingly absorbed into its black, matted fur. To distract myself from the possibility of near death behind me, I thought about how I would study the picture as soon as I got home. I knew the beast was around ten feet tall, and each of its sharp claws were about a foot in length. I also knew that it had a hunched back and paw-like feet. 
I would record all of these observations in a notebook before cross-referencing them with my small collection of encyclopedias, which has, since that day, grown exponentially, in order to try and identify the species of the beast. The picture is crucial at this step, as it's necessary to have one on hand in case it must be referenced for any further physical characteristics. So I tucked the picture safely into my pocket and picked up my pace. I watched as the forest transformed back into the one that I was more familiar with, and noticed, as I reached the path I had come from, that the beast was no longer behind me. In fact, when I turned around, it looked as though the beast hadn't been behind me for quite a while. I theorized that maybe the beast had stopped following me as soon as I had left the corrupted part of the forest. And then I began my walk home. Once I had returned home, I rushed to the small workstation I had in my attic bedroom and began spreading the photos I'd taken out over my desk. They were all blurry, useless, really, but I knew that I had the perfect one in my pocket. I pulled it out and placed it on the desk, and it was gone. The, the physical photo was still there, but it was now just a picture of the forest, the beast I know I had captured, completely gone. I, I was crestfallen and perplexed as to how the creature had managed to erase itself from my picture. I did my best to try and identify it, but I couldn't even find something close in my encyclopedias. Without the picture, I was lost. Although, looking back many years later, I'm inclined to believe that the beast I saw, or anything like it, was not present in my encyclopedias, for it wasn't known. I think that that day in the sunlit forest, I discovered something. But I have no proof. No proof. That brings us to the end of my first story. If you'll excuse me, I'm going to go grab a cup of tea before continuing. This next story takes place when I was in university. Well, more accurately, it takes place during the summer between my third and fourth years of tertiary schooling, but who's really checking? I was vacationing with a small group of friends on the coast, and we had rented a seaside bungalow, which we rushed to the second our last final was over. Our getaway was located in a small town full of friendly seafaring locals who were so comfortable in the water you would have thought they had gills. Or maybe they did have gills. Regardless, our stay was extremely pleasant. I was out one early morning, walking along the dunes, when I spotted something small dart over the crest of a rather tall mountain of sand. Curious as ever, I followed it, having to struggle quite immensely to find traction as I climbed. When I made it over the top, I laid eyes on a wonderful little creature, no taller than a foot, that looked like an extremely short-haired rabbit standing back on its hind legs, only instead of long ears, it had short, round ones like those of a mouse. I laid quietly on the dune so as not to disturb it, and pulled a small notebook that I had taken to carrying on me out of my pocket. Folded into the front cover was a sheet of notes that I compiled before our trip. They contained information about local animals and plants that I thought were worth keeping an eye out for. 
On the back of the page, the bottom right corner, there was a crude drawing of the animal in front of me. I glanced up to ensure the creature hadn't moved. Its nose was to the wind, sniffing aggressively. I returned my eyes to the page, reading over the notes I had taken. The creature was called a Nosy, and was a cousin of the forest-dwelling Squonk. Nosies think that they are so hideous that nothing should ever look upon them, but unlike the Squonk, they will actively make sure someone doesn't look at them by using their sharp claws to gouge anyone that has the misfortune of seeing them's eyes out. They are notoriously difficult creatures to study, and most Nosy experts are eyeless by the end of their career. It dawned upon me that I was in terrible danger, and so I decided to try and slowly shuffle backwards down the dune and calmly return to the bungalow. But, as I was ungracefully shuffling, my shirt hiked up around my waist, leaving my stomach open to a rather sharp seashell that was lurking just under the sand. It scratched me, and I involuntarily hissed in pain, which alerted the creature to my presence. It scurried up the dune, its long-toed feet finding easy traction in the sand, and lunged at my face, menacing claws unsheathed. They found purchase just above my left eyebrow and dragged down, heading for my eye. However, I reared up and fell backwards, tumbling head over heels at an incredible speed down the dune, followed by the creature. Blood from the cut on my eyebrow flowed freely into my left eye, making it difficult to see and therefore escape. So I curled tightly into a ball, known in A Beginner's Guide to Studying as Defensive Position Number One, and hoped that a friendly beachcomber would scare the no-see off. Instead, I heard my name being called from a distance away, and was flooded with relief when my friends came running, and the no-see scampered away in an effort to not be seen by more people. My friends helped me back to the bungalow, where they treated my wound and listened as I regaled them with stories of my harrowing encounter. I was lucky to make it out of that alive, and with both my eyes, although I have a scar striking through my left eyebrow to this day. My final story is quite recent, and in fact, concerns my adventure in the other forest I told you about last week. If you'll recall, I was stressed beyond belief about starting a podcast and ventured into the dark and unfriendly other forest, where I got lost, fell into a ravine, had an epiphany, and somehow returned home, the complete opposite of unscathed. I recorded the first episode of this podcast mere hours after waking up half-submerged in disgusting water in my own bathtub with no memory of how I got there. Something else that you might recall is that when I first entered the other forest, I took a peculiar sample of bark from a tree. To quote directly from when the memory was more fresh in my mind, the bark was sticky in the way that only something covered in thousands of tiny little needles is sticky. 
and when I tried to collect a sample, my bark-prying instrument, a flat piece of metal that comes to a gentle point at one end, did not pry as much as gouge at the surface of the tree, revealing a layer of much softer wood beneath it that seemed to be oozing a sort of dark, red, viscous sap. Regardless of the complications, I was able to collect a sample, which returned home safely with my unconscious body, in a small glass jar tucked in the front pocket of my pants. After awakening in my bathtub, and after, of course, the screaming, panicking, and existential crisis that usually comes when one wakes up in one's own bathtub with no memory of getting into said bathtub, and also after bandaging several wounds and setting a couple bones, I ran to my desk or rather limped aggressively given the circumstances, I moved urgently to my desk and produced the jar that contained the bark sample from my ruined pants pocket. Or at least, that's what I would have done had the jar been in my pants. Upon realizing that the jar was not in my pants pocket, I rushed back into my bathroom, where I found the jar floating in my tub, which was draining quite slowly due to the fact that things that were not water were trying to make their way into the pipes. I grabbed the jar and resolved to fix my drain problem later. Later has yet to come. My bathtub is still draining from the shower I took yesterday. Anyway, I grabbed the jar and urgently returned to my desk, spurred on by the confusion and anger my experience in the other forest had brought on, as well as the need to do literally anything to distract from the immense pain moving caused me. I sat down turned on my desk light and pulled out some studying materials, which included, but were not limited to, a notebook and pen, a magnifying glass, safety goggles, poking tool, a prodding tool, and forceps. Carefully, I opened the jar and was overcome with the same sickly sweet scent that the tree had produced when I removed my sample of bark. Tireless years of training and schooling told me that it was a bad smell. So did the fact that, immediately after smelling it, I passed out. When I awoke from unwillingly going to sleep for the second time that day, I was halfway down my porch steps. My positioning and broken ribs told me that I was not there voluntarily, but rather that I had been thrown. After groaning, moaning, and cursing the old gods for my birth, I wasn't having a good day. I put on the emergency fume mask that I keep stashed on my porch for emergency situations like the one I was experiencing, and marched back into my home to put the lid back on my sample jar and open all the windows to allow the noxious fumes to escape, before swiftly exiting to lay on my front lawn and contemplate my existence. This is where the format of this story diverges from that of the first two, because this story is... still happening. See, once my house was safe to enter, I locked the sample in my Very Dangerous Things cabinet and recorded the first ever episode of this podcast to get my mind off of things. I haven't opened the cabinet since then. Every time I even think about approaching it, I'm filled with a terrible sense of horror and foreboding. My head starts to swim and old injuries start to ache. Sometimes, when I think about the bark sample for too long, I find myself 
miraculously awaking in the corner of my house furthest from my very dangerous things cabinet, or even out on my front porch with no memory of moving. That bark does not want to be studied, but one day I shall do my due diligence as a studier of things that do not want to be studied, and study it. I will keep you updated. I do hope that these stories have provided you with a better understanding of my career, and my life in general. I mean, studying has been my passion since I was a child. It may be a dangerous and difficult occupation, but I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Thank you for spending this time with me, dear listeners. So long, for now.